This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. We expect great from America, you know, and for them, whether you're a convict or not, for them to treat us like this, it's like, like if we're not humans at all. To stop the spread of coronavirus, the single most important thing we've all been told to do is to stay away from other people. But physical distancing is nearly impossible when you're behind bars. The United States now has the highest number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 per capita. We also have more people incarcerated than any other country on Earth. And that's a bad combination. This is Making the Call, a podcast about how we make impossible choices. I'm Jonathan Moreno. I'm a bioethicist, philosopher, and historian. And I'm Zeke Emanuel. I'm an oncologist, bioethicist, and health policy expert. There are more than two million people locked up across the United States. Whatever they may have done to get there, they haven't been sentenced to death by virus. In this episode, how do we stop COVID-19 from spreading in prisons and jails? Zeke, I think we ought to get something established right away. Not everybody listening to this episode might care a lot about prisoners. Why should they? Well, first of all, they're members of our society and they're entrusted to the government. And we have to care how we treat them and treat them fairly. The second thing is that a lot of the people in jail, they haven't been convicted of anything. They've been arrested. And, you know, we are a society that rests on the presumption of innocence. And I think we have to presume that these people are innocent until proven guilty. And they, all of them, especially if they're convicted and serving their time out in jail, they're going back into society. They're going to affect all of us. And we need to be sure that their health care, certainly in the case of an infectious disease like COVID, is attended to, if only out of self-interest. So one of the reasons we're in the situation we're in is because of deinstitutionalization. That was a policy movement that started in the 1960s. It really intensified in the 70s and 80s. And the idea behind it was that many people would be better off not in mental hospitals, you know, for months or even years. We had medication that at least made us feel better, but it didn't necessarily make the patients feel better. And it certainly didn't get to the causes of their mental illness. But the hospitals were closed and society failed to do what it was supposed to do, what politicians had promised in the 70s. And that was to create community mental health centers. There are some, but they're not enough, and they're inadequate. So we've now treated the prisons basically as de facto mental hospitals. We've been talking about mental health care for the population in jails and prisons, but that's far from their only health care condition that needs attention. We have a rapidly aging prison population, and they have the typical chronic diseases of older people, whether it's hypertension or diabetes or renal failure or heart failure. And so they need a lot of medical care. Yeah, these are very complex patients, even outside of a 
prison or a jail. And, you know, as you say, they are getting older and they're getting the diseases of aging, including dementias. These places are not equipped to take care of those folks. And then we have the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the New York Times last week, out of the top 30 clusters of COVID-19 cases around the country, three are in nursing homes, six are in meatpacking plants, and 19 are in prisons and jails. And one place that's really been hit hard is in my hometown of Chicago, the Cook County Jail. It's the third largest jail complex in the entire United States. Under normal circumstances, the daily jail population is around 6,000 people with a lot of people coming in every day and going out every day. And the consequences, lots of COVID-19 in the jail. We don't know the true number because not every prisoner is tested, but we do know that when we were recording, seven inmates have died from coronavirus complications, which seems pretty outrageous to go into a prison and end up dying from something totally extraneous. So the interviews you're about to hear with inmates from the Cook County Jail were done at the beginning of April. All these men are being housed in a residential treatment unit, which means that they are receiving care for some serious medical condition even before the COVID-19 pandemic. We're not using their names, of course, to protect them against possible retaliation from the jail itself. Well, me, uh, I, I pray a lot. So I pray a lot and uh, read books. Oh, it's, it's terrible. It's, uh, we on a dorm and, uh, oh boy, we just uh, pretty much piled on top of each other. It's uh, hot in here right now. A lot of guys are sick. It's hard to stay away from each other because we're in a dorm and it's 39 people. It's impossible. You get literally like two feet on top of each other. You know, you're sleeping two feet from the you know, next person. They've been sick. So, of course, you know, you can't help but think where well, I'm exposed to by only being a couple of feet from them all the time. It's bad enough that people are living on top of each other. But these men say that the jail doesn't have enough supplies to even try to keep them safe. There's 40 people in this tier. 40 people. There's 40 people using the showers and the bathrooms. We have to clean twice a day, if not three or four times a day. But we can't. It's impossible. It's really, like, filthy. It's just like... And then they want the inmates to clean up, but they're not getting these guys gloves. They're not getting these guys masks. They don't get nobody masks in here. They need to. Everybody should have a mask. You know, if we're out in the day room, we just try to put our shirt around our face or a towel. They'll tell us, you know, we can't do that because we have to have our face visible. So they don't even allow us to cover our face with our towels or even our shirts. It's kind of like they're just leaving us in here and saying, you know, whatever happens, happens. Plenty of inmates are showing symptoms that could be related to COVID-19. You know, there's a lot of guys coughing and got a fever and... It's like you got to be damn in time for, for them to, to get medical attention. I've been experiencing a lot of fatigue, like at it, you know, and gives it this. And, um, you know, I, I report to the nurses and um, they just say, well, you know, there's nothing they can do right now. But if it gets worse, I'm like, well, will we, we'll we fall out? You know, they're like, we're going to give you Tylenol. And that's far as it goes. So it's basically like if you ain't finna pass it like you finna die, you really, you just stuck. Remember, all these men live in a medical unit, some with serious conditions that make them even more vulnerable to the virus. I was also just 
diagnosed with Hoskins lymphoma phase two uh, since I've been here and I have no medicine. I'm not seeing the doctors. Yeah, I got asthmatic, uh, heart condition, plus diabetes. You know, when I do see a doctor, they tell me they can't address all my issues because I got too much going on. It'd be the exact words, and, um, you know, pretty much just put me up out of the office. I've been taking uh, chemotherapy since I've been here for the last couple months, and I also have high blood pressure. I have an enlarged heart. You know, I also uh, recently just found out about a, a recent hernia, and that's due to the chemo and the side effects of the chemo. And, it's been hurting my body so bad. I just found that I had a hernia. So for, for me to be a high-risk person, you know, I still don't know when the next time I'm even going to court to even possibly get a bond or be even let out on uh, electronic monitoring. Many people in county jails are eligible for release but can't afford to pay their bail bonds. My bond's $200,000 right now, right? And now they say that violent offenders can't get bond hearings. But if I had $200 right now, they'll let me out and won't blink twice. They'll let me walk out of here today and don't care about uh, violence or nothing. I'll walk right out of here. But I can, obviously, I can't afford $200,000 because you can't take care of me in here. I'm asking for a reasonable bond. I've been in here seven and a half years. I'm asking for a reasonable bond. I can't get it because I'm a violent offender. But if I had 200000 it wouldn't matter how violent I am. you let me out. The threat of the coronavirus only adds to the everyday stress of living behind bars. Everybody's on edge. You know, it's, it's a lot of a lot of emotions flying because people is trying to get out of here. They're trying to contact their family and let their family know what's going on and just hearing the lies every day on the news. You know, people is really getting fed up. And of course, this is a jail, so, you know, at any point in time, if a fight breaks out or someone's getting attacked, you know, it'll be, they'll just be left on their own. Because the guards is not on the deck. They're not watching us. They don't see what we're doing. It's like they don't care. They're just keeping us here. And like y'all fed for yourself. I've got sick since I've been over here. You know, I just, I just, I just, I just, I just dealt with it. I'm still dealing with it. A guy that did, that just died, I know him, and they took him, they took him from a from a from a cell environment and put him behind uh, on a dorm, and he died because he caught the corona. Y'all cause the people to be sick. That's what they're doing. If people ain't sick, they making them sick. They, they killing people themselves. We expect great from America, you know, and for them, whether you're a convict or not, for them to treat us like this, it's like, like if we're not humans at all. Unfortunately, you know, I made a mistake and it's, I'm paying for it. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. 
So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. What we've just heard described from inside the Cook County Jail are just really horrific conditions. Zeke, would you say that bioethicists have taken much of an interest in what goes on in prisons and jails up to now? Well, you know, bioethicists were really active in what you called at the top of the show, the deinstitutionalization of people out of asylums onto the street and getting outpatient treatment. I would say in general, bioethicists have not been as active as they might about the conditions in jail. This is actually, I think, a very serious bioethical issue. Yeah, it's interesting that many of us in bioethics have been very interested in making sure that there are no abuses of prisoners in human experiments, but we haven't really focused on the other ethical issues in prisoners' health care. I agree. And one of the big issues that happens is how these people get regular care, especially regular care that is expensive. I remember when I was an intern and resident working in Boston that we often had prisoners who came into the hospital and almost invariably they were sicker than normal patients and they came in with more advanced complicated illness as if by the time they got to us, it had gone pretty far. Yeah, some years ago when I visited San Quentin, an enormous prison in the Bay Area in California, one of the prisoners said, you know, in prison, you have to convince two people you're sick. First, the uh, officer, and then the nurse or doctor. And if the officer doesn't believe us, we don't get to see the nurse or doctor. I think that's one reason that, as you describe, medical problems have a way of building up in prisoners before they're properly seen by a doctor or a nurse. Yeah. And we know that there have been some really egregious cases where people have died in prison for lack of simple medical services. So correctional medicine is really a complicated topic. To learn more about it, we decided to look at another big city with a jail population similar to Chicago's, Philadelphia. We spoke with Dr. Bruce Herdman, Chief of Medical Operations for the Philadelphia Department of Prisons. Then we talked to the Philadelphia District Attorney, Larry Krasner, who's been leading an effort to reduce the jail population. First, Here's Bruce Herdman. What is medical care like in the Philadelphia jail under normal circumstances? Well, normally uh, inmates, as you probably know, because of the way the Constitution has been interpreted, are eligible for the same services that you or I would receive if we had a good health insurance plan without copays and without deductibles and usually faster than many citizens can receive care in the community. So we provide all primary care services on site, including psychiatry. And we have a, a few specialists that are full-time on site, infectious disease, OBGYN, for example. And what's the illness burden like in, in the prison? What are like some of the typical 
problems? What's the scale of medical problems, would you say? We actually uh, refer to it as the illness opportunity because the people that are in the jail, generally speaking, haven't gotten care in the community and their health status uh, reflects that. 26% of the inmates have a significant chronic physical illness like hypertension, diabetes, a lot of seizure disorder related to substance abuse. Probably 80% of the inmates have a substance use disorder. 36% of the population is on the behavioral health caseload. Most of those people are medicated. Of course, people can refuse medications. And uh, 16% of the total population is what we call seriously mentally ill. They have schizophrenia or bipolar disease or atypical psychosis. We generally refer to the population as having three times the illness burden of the population in the community. This is a group of people on average just only 34 years of age. And I guess you can't really tell who's in, got an infection who's coming in because people are coming in every day. But what kinds of precautions can you take given that there are no infection tests? And can you do thermal testing? Can you do distribute masks? What can you do? Every inmate and every officer has a mask, uh, and those masks are replaced regularly. If an inmate is in isolation, meaning that they have had a symptom that could be COVID, then uh, people are wearing face shields and glasses and gloves and you know different higher levels of protective equipment. So when a person comes in, they are checked immediately. Everybody is seen by a nurse, and, and we complete our medical evaluations within four hours after a person gets off the delivery van. If a person's symptomatic, they're put in isolation, and then everybody that comes in today stays in what we call intake quarantine for 14 days, you know, so that we can be sure or fairly sure that they, they pass the point where they're going to be passing on uh, virus, even if they're asymptomatic. So after they leave this intake quarantine, from the inmate's point of view, is anything different now than it was before the pandemic? Yeah, the average inmate is out of their cell 16 hours a day normally. And today they're out of their cell for an hour and a half. So for the last month plus, most of these people have just been sitting in their cells. And that's a hugely different experience and not one any of us wants for them or for us. So a bit ago, you said that these folks get you know excellent medical care. And there are a lot of people who are not familiar with prison health who might be surprised at that, the fact that so many people get perhaps better medical care than people are on the street. How do you justify that when you're in the public arena? Uh, yeah, I, I think the problem is that people outside are not getting the care that they should be getting. It's not so much that, that we shouldn't give the care to inmates because uh, I, I must say that I'm, I'm very concerned about people in the neighborhoods around the jail. They don't go to even if they have a cancer diagnosis, for example, they won't get a second opinion. They stick with a community provider who is well-meaning and well-liked and hasn't read a referee journal article in 20 years. So there's a lot of people who are not getting good care. And uh, the answer is not to diminish what's done in the jail. It's to improve what's done outside the jail. I want to say that I think that uh, Philadelphia is not normal in terms of the amount of care that's provided in jurisdictions or the quality of the care that's provided. I think that uh, some of the stories that you hear are probably elaborated on as to how bad the care is, but I think a lot of the stories are accurate. Nobody's forced, unless the state wants to force the issue, no one is forced to meet particular standards. All of our facilities are accredited by something called the National Commission for Correctional Health Care, which is like the Joint Commission for Hospitals. 
but I think there are only 700 out of several thousand jails in the country that are accredited. What, what keeps you up at night about COVID-19? Originally, it was simply not, not having any idea what the spread would be like and what percentage of the individuals would end up hospitalized and even dead. We have a much better sense today of how successful we are with treating people. So we have uh, 60-some people that are positive today, and three are in the hospital. Two are probably going to be released from the hospital soon. We have had one death of an inmate while they were incarcerated. Another inmate was released from custody and died afterwards. They were both uh, in university hospitals. Um, you know, I think they got good care, but it was very upsetting. It was interesting, I guess you wouldn't maybe expect this, but the woman that died had been in the jail many times and was well known to a lot of the senior staff. And it was a personal loss to the staff when this person died. Uh, she was she was well liked. Uh, so there's a little more complicated, just as an interpersonal experience than you might expect. They know her. They knew her well, yes. You know, the average number of incarcerations for individuals in our prison is 6.7. 80% of the people in the jail today have been there before. So our staff know a lot of these people and they know their families. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. So obviously, the quality of healthcare can be improved a lot in jails and prisons across the country. That was true even before the coronavirus hit. But right now, the most obvious and probably most effective way to reduce the risk to prisoners is to reduce the prison population. That's right, Jonathan. But letting people out is not something that someone like Bruce Herdman can do alone. That's up to the courts and the district attorney. In Philadelphia, that district attorney is a guy named Larry Krasner. Larry Krasner was elected in 2017 as maybe the most high profile in a wave of new progressive prosecutors across the country. Even before COVID-19, his office was working to bring down the number of people in Philadelphia jails. So how do you decide who to release and who to keep behind bars during a pandemic? That's what we wanted to ask Larry Krasner. I think it's fair to say that your background is a little unusual for a DA. Would you say something about that? 
Uh, <clears throat> I mean, in the sense that I am in favor of seeking justice, yes, it is a little <laughs> bit unusual, and I don't. I, you, you can know, be a little more specific. <laughs> well, I mean, as long as we're really talking. Yeah. So uh, I came out of law school, and I became a public defender for five years in state and federal court. And then I started my own law practice where I did criminal defense and I did civil rights work for individuals until, well, all of a sudden I decided to run for DA at age 56. And I became the district attorney about two years ago in Philadelphia County on a very progressive platform. We call that switching sides, don't we? No, we don't because you either believe in justice or you don't. And uh, there's good work to be done as a defense attorney, and there's good work to be done as a prosecutor. So one of the changes that you've had to deal with from a policy standpoint as DA uh, has to do with the population of the jails. What have you had to do to bring that population down? And I guess even before that, you know, how did you come to the decision about the need to do that? Well, it's, you know, it has been a long process in Philadelphia with reference to reduction in the jail population. In many ways, the story before the pandemic is at least as important as the story after the pandemic, because in Philly, not so long ago, probably about five, six years ago, there were 10,000 people in the county jails. The county jails were a constant source of litigation because there were three people in a cell and it was just an excessively incarcerated population. Why was it so overcrowded? It was overcrowded for a lot of the reasons we have had the rise of mass incarceration in the United States, and the United States has become the most incarcerated country in the world. Pennsylvania generally is even worse, where we've had an 800% increase in the population over a few decades, where the rest of the country has increased 500%. Why did that happen? It happened because people became district attorneys so they could run for something else, because they turned the office into politics as opposed to sound social policy. And their answer to everything was lock it up. Mental illness, lock it up. Homelessness, lock it up. Prostitution, lock it up. And uh, of course, drugs, we can, you know, we're going to win that war. We should just lock every single person up. And they very much bought into the fundamental notion that people are unchanging and they are either totally bad or they're totally good. And since they're totally bad and cannot change, we need to lock them up for long periods of time. I mean, that's a much broader sort of a notion of how Americans have in the past thought about people and, and its implications. So as you said, the overcrowding goes back a long time. There was already an effort to reduce the jail population before this pandemic got started. What does that look like now? We are juggling public health safety with public safety from crime. And anyone who's actually trying to seek justice and keep people safe has to bear both of those things in mind because you know you don't want one kind of killer to be killing and you don't want the other kind of killer to be killing. So, you know, my position on this, of course, was we need to keep people who are a real threat to public safety in custody, but a lot of the folks who are in there aren't. And so um, the public defender and the DA's office started working together pretty effectively to try to identify groups of people in which there were a lot of candidates to come out of jail. And after a certain amount of foot dragging and delay, on the part of a system that's not used to change, we were able to succeed in having some reduction. How do you decide who gets out and who you're going to release? And is that an individual case or it, are you looking at big groups? If you're releasing a thousand people, I take it it's by group. Uh, it, actually, it's not by group. I think the hallmark of our philosophy here has been that there should be individual justice and that things like mandatory minimums that just identify big categories and treat them identically when they are not identical are wrong. 
So every case was considered individually by the DA's office. And then the decisions were all made by judges. The DA does not have the power to let people out of jail. And so they were coming out in three categories. One category was people who were already sentenced and were doing county sentences, which are pretty short sentences. And then there were people who were being held in custody on detainers, meaning they had some kind of probation or parole supervision. They had done something to get themselves locked up again. That could have been anything from didn't go to their probation officer once or twice or had marijuana in their system or something more serious, like they had been arrested for a new offense. So detainers were the second thing. And then the final thing was people who were being held because of bail and whether or not it was appropriate to lower their bail so that they could get out. And do you think that if you got rid of uh, cash bail, it would make a difference uh, to COVID and COVID spread? I do. Uh, And I say that having looked at a whole bunch of data just yesterday, we've been closely monitoring what's going on with bail because, you know, it seemed to us that now more than ever, you should really have only two positions on custody. One position is that Mike the shooter is such a menace and is shooting up the block that he needs to stay in jail. I don't care if he's rich and he can pay $2 million in bail. He needs to stay in jail so he doesn't shoot somebody and so he doesn't get shot. And then you have Joe over here who's not a shooter. Joe's a retail thief. Joe may have psychological issues, may be addicted, shouldn't be doing retail theft, but that's what he's doing. And in Joe's case, he's going to be stuck in jail because he can't pay $200 because he is flat broke. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense either. Joe is more of a danger as an incubator for the the COVID. And Mike is more of a danger on the street as somebody who's going to shoot people up and therefore be, you know, probably a greater risk than he would be as an incubator. Uh, And what we're seeing is that because Philadelphia has a cash bail system, unlike Washington, D.C. or other places, what we're seeing, unfortunately, is that some of the people who really should be out because they're basically poor and they're being held because they can't pay bail on minor offenses are being held. So they're incubators. And at the other end, we are seeing too many people who are actually a significant danger uh, in the sense that they may do some pretty terrible violent acts, gun violence, et cetera. Some of them are getting out just because if you are involved in lucrative crime like drug dealing, it is really not that hard to get together a few thousand dollars and make bail. And the way the, you know, the way the bail system works in Philly is they can say a big bail number, but it actually requires far less than that to get out. You know, you've been working to reduce the jail population for years, and now it looks like you had remarkable foresight. I mean, it's just stunning to me that this has worked out so well from the standpoint of a public health crisis that you couldn't possibly have anticipated. Well, uh, it's a complicated situation because even crime is following some new and interesting patterns. We are seeing increases in a few areas that are truly alarming. One of them is homicides. Another one is shootings. Uh, We're also seeing a spike that's significant in commercial burglaries. But at least at the moment, in almost every other category. I mean, maybe a little bit of a a bump in thefts from automobiles and thefts of automobiles. But in every other category, we are seeing very significant reductions in crime. And if you think about it, it makes sense. You're not going to have opportunistic robberies happening on the street when nobody's walking around. You're not going to have retail thefts when the stores are closed. You're not going to have bar fights when there's no bars where you can fight, right? So we're, I mean, in Philly, the the general trends in crime are something like a 20% reduction overall. Violent crime overall is down. 
nonviolent crime overall is is down, even though we have this awful spike of uh, shootings and and murders and commercial burglaries. I want to ask you about the sort of paradox that murders and shootings are up and yet other crimes are down. Is any of that related to your early release policies? Uh, There is no evidence this is tied to early release. The people being released overwhelmingly, and I mean really overwhelmingly, are uh, there for nonviolent offenses. There are people who were released who did not have guns, were not charged with gun offenses, things of that sort. So there's really no evidence that the early release has had that kind of an impact. Do you think Philadelphia has done a good job when it comes to inmate safety? I would say not good enough. I mean, certainly it's it. Uh, the most important progress that happened has happened before COVID ever came. I mean, imagine a world where we had 10,000 people in jail when this started. We've already seen at least one death in state custody. We've seen a death in county custody among the inmates. I'm hearing information indicating we have the death of a corrections officer in the county now. But I can only imagine what a fiasco this would have been with triple cells. But, you know, I don't, I, I don't even want to think about it. Do you have a sense of, of how inmate safety could be improved right now? You say it's not terrific, but are there specific things that should be done? Well, let me put it this way. In practical terms, I would like to think that they, there would be widespread testing within the jails. It is not my information that they've said, let's just test everybody in here, as they have done in some other facilities where they're finding things like, well, actually, the level of presence of the antibodies is about 30 times what we thought. You know, we're going to face very, very similar issues when the courts reopen because the reality of a criminal courthouse like the one we have in Philly is three to 4,000 people pile in the front door at the same hour you know, 8.30 to 9.30 of the morning, and they ride 12 elevators that are jammed, and then they go to courtrooms that are jammed all over the courthouse, and people come in close contact all day. We can't do that, but we still are going to have to meet speedy trial requirements and prosecute serious cases with witnesses who might not want to come to court. I mean, the whole thing is going to become this wild experiment What are we going to do about people coming in? Are we going to check their temperatures? What are we going to do about DAs? Are we going to have to test you for antibodies before we let you go over there and potentially endanger others and or yourself? Can we even get antibody tests? You know, we're going to be up against all kinds of stuff just because we're an institution with 5,600 people in terms of, oh my goodness, employee number one has a dry cough and a temperature. So I guess we have to evacuate half the floor, all of whose work is absolutely essential to get done right now. So at this point, thousands of people have been released from prisons and jails all over the country, with counties and states trying to mitigate the spread of coronavirus. But it makes you think, did all these people need to be locked up in the first place? Yeah, that gets back to 30, 40, 50 years almost of prison philosophy of lock them up. And the pendulum seems to be swinging to the other direction, that a lot of the people we've put in prison, it's a bad thing that they're in prison. It's bad for them. It's bad for the communities they come from. It's even bad often for the families and their children. So we're really, I think, being forced to reconsider who gets imprisoned because of COVID-19. Already, I think over the last few years, you've seen judges really uncomfortable with the guidance that they've had uh, for nonviolent young offenders, especially drug crimes. It's just another example, Zeke, of how the ethical issues in our society 
have been really exposed by the pandemic, the kind of thing that we were able to kind of ignore for so many years. This is just another example of how it feels like we need to adjust the way that we're running our society. Yeah. And COVID-19, has, as you point out, exposed the inequities of the sentencing guidelines. And maybe the next step is it's going to really expose the sort of second class medical care that a lot of these prisoners get, make us reexamine how we actually care for prisoners. That probably would be a very good thing if one of the outcomes of COVID was reexamining who gets in prison, the kind of care they get and the kind of other activities like education they can participate in. Making the Call is a production of Endeavor Content. Executive produced by Max Friedman, Jonathan Moreno, that's me, and Zeke Emanuel. Created by Jonathan Moreno and Zeke Emanuel. Our managing producer is Jasmine Romero. Research help from Aaron Glickman. Mixing and engineering provided by Sam Baer. Interviews from the Cook County Jail were conducted by Myra Quadja of the Invisible Institute and originally aired on Southside Weekly Radio. Special thanks to Dominic Sisti and Elise Blenner-Hassett. If you like this episode as much as my mother did, be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also let us know what you think by tweeting at us at MakeTheCallPod. We'll be back in two weeks with a deep dive on vaccines. We'll be tackling questions like, when a vaccine is ready, who will get it first? And can we mandate being vaccinated? Tune in for the answers on Wednesday, June 3rd. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.